Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. In 2008, financial markets cratered all over the world. Stocks imploded. Evictions and foreclosures were rampant. Unemployment skyrocketed. And while some countries were hit harder than others, the Global Financial Crisis, or GFC, had wide-ranging political implications all over the globe. Take New Zealand, for instance. In 2008, the left-leaning Labour Party was in control of the government. But partly as a result of the losses incurred by the GFC, Kiwi voters began to lose faith in Labour, and they were ousted in the general election by the center-right party, National. Labour found itself on the outside looking in, and turnover was high among party leadership. Between 2008 and 2017, four different leaders tried and failed to bring Labour back to relevance. And in 2014, things seemed to hit a low point. The 2014 election was Labour's worst defeat in 90 years. Basically, since the party was formed, there has not been a worse defeat. That's Neil Jones, a former chief of staff for several Labour Party leaders. It was, I think, it's fair to say the party gave people every reason not to vote for it. And one in four New Zealanders still got out and voted for Labour, which I found astounding. Um, The caucus was divided and factionalised. Uh, The party machinery was pretty broken. The morale among members was low. Fundraising had taken a dive, partly as a result of our factionalism and our low polling. And our brand, I think, was pretty mortally wounded. So it was a a pretty sad place, and people were sort of questioning, what is the future of the Labour Party? The 2017 general election felt like a crucial moment for Labour. But things were looking rough for them from the outset. National held 56 of what were then 121 seats in Parliament, with Labour holding only 32. They'd received only 25% of the vote in 2014. But Neil and Labour Party leader Andrew Little had hopes for how the 2017 election could go. Our polling had been around 30%, and we knew we needed about 35% to be able to form a government, because we couldn't lead a government on less than, and form a coalition on less than about 35 And our hope was that from a base of 30, if we ran a good campaign, Andrew Little got good publicity, maybe we could get it up to 35 over a campaign and we could just form a government. That was our sort of pathway to victory. It was very narrow, but it was our pathway. But as the early polling numbers came back in 2017, the news for Labour was even worse than expected. On July 23rd, a News Hub Read research poll found that Labour had the support of only 24% of voters. There started being serious questions about, well, can Andrew survive this? Now, seven weeks out from the election, the idea of changing the leader is unheard of. Uh, He did a TV interview where he was asked, have you considered resigning? And he said, well, yes, I have to be honest with you, I have considered it. That set off a huge round of speculation about will he go. And my fear at that point was if we get into a leadership stoush seven weeks out from an election, we get right back into that same problem we had in 2014 of a divided, factionalised caucus fighting in public, people saying, get more leadership changes, you know, you guys are a joke, you can't be trusted to run the country. I I, I feared the worst. And over the next few days, Labour tried to figure out what to do, how to save themselves. 
Neil remembers that a breaking point came the day before a weekly briefing to the press. I think we talked about 1am that night. Uh, it was myself, uh, Andrew and Mike Jaspers, who was the Chief Press Secretary. And we talked through the night about what his options were. And, I mean, the pressure I can't quite describe of him having to make a decision like that, seven weeks out, the billboards have been printed, his face is on street corners all over New Zealand. He's booked into all the leadership debates. You know, his, all the media outlets have pictures of him and Bill English, the Prime Minister at the time, as the two leaders facing it off. We're, we're fully in the campaign. And he, I have to say, what amazed me was the whole night, he wasn't thinking about himself. He spent the whole night questioning, is it my duty to fight it out and to just do my best in this campaign, lose and let someone else pick up the reins after the election? Or is it my duty to stand down and let someone else have a chance? So on August 1st, Andrew Little addressed the public. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, so I've just confirmed to the Labour caucus that I will step aside as leader of the Labour Party. We were not able to, have not been able to, get our messages about the things that actually matter. I take responsibility for that. And it is my judgment that the party and the people who we are campaigning for would be better served by a new leader who can bring a fresh face and a fresh voice to this vital campaign. But not only would Labour need to find a fresh voice for this general election, they'd also have to counter years of successful messaging on the part of National. And they'd have to do it in seven weeks. People say to me, you gotta be crazy. How can you sing in times like these? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the score? How can you sing when so many others grieve? By way of a reply, I say a fool such as I, who sees his song as somewhere to This is Brave New Words, and I'm Anat Shanker Osorio. As a communications consultant working with advocates for human rights, equality, and justice, I believe the job of a good message isn't to say what's popular. It's to make popular what we need said. I examine people's underlying assumptions and perceptions in order to understand why certain messages resonate where others falter. And now, With the help of some of the world's boldest, most strategic, and accomplished campaigners, I'm exploring the words that have won us progressive victories. These six episodes can provide a playbook for how to engage our base, persuade the middle, and reveal the opposition for the outliers they are. So Neil, let's jump back a bit. What kind of messaging had National been using? What stories had they told about themselves to stay in power? So National was very smart politically early on of pinning the blame for the GFC on Labour and showing themselves as the solution. The last Labour government had got net debt down to zero. It had invested in a superannuation fund to pre-fund the cost of the baby boomer generation superannuation. Superannuation is New Zealandish for Social Security. It had renationalised assets that had fallen over and generally built New Zealand into a position where it could withstand the GFC very well. National ran a a line that, based on one line in a Treasury document, that said there was a decade of deficits projected and said, Labour has left us with a decade of deficits. 
and that they were the solution. So they ran an austerity light program. Anytime someone said, we need more funding for this, they would say, well, you know, that'd be nice. You know, I'm sure these people mean well, but unfortunately, we have to manage the economy back into the black. And so given New Zealand and Australia weren't hit as hard by the GFC as other countries in the world, so our economy actually ticked along over the last decade a lot better than uh, comparable economies in Europe and the US, for example, which were hit harder. And so they ran a line that they had a rock star economy, that they were economic geniuses, that the only thing stopping that could stop that would be if they lost power and labor would crash the economy again. And that was basically their whole message for a decade. So fast forwarding uh, into the campaign itself, how was it progressing during its first weeks while Andrew Little, your former boss, um, was serving as party leader? What was sort of the architecture of the campaign and the plan? So our our campaign very much in 2017 was built around core themes of health, housing, education, and about saying that Labor would invest in these things and fix these problems. People liked our policies and people liked our messages about those policies, and they thought it was probably time for change. They didn't think that Labor, though, was a viable alternative yet, and that meant we were really struggling in the polls. And... I think eventually Andrew Little realised that he as a leader was very good at, you know, rebuilding a party about organisation, but struggled with that last piece, which is so crucial in political leadership, which is being able to authentically connect a message to people, you know, actually make people believe that you can deliver change. And I think that's ultimately where he realised that he had to step down and give Jacinda a chance. Jacinda Ardern was first elected to Parliament in 2008 and was selected as deputy leader unanimously in March of 2017. So she'd been in that role for roughly six months when Andrew Little stepped down and she became the youngest leader in the Labour Party's history. So let's talk about that transition. Obviously, a new leader, a different human being, a different style. How did Labour's messaging approach to the campaign change? I think I think the tone is the first thing. So there was just this tremendous outpouring of hope and energy when she was elected. And we had 72 hours to rearrange the campaign. And she kept the primary, you know, she kept the main planks of the platform which had been tested and decided, you know, internally and she kept all that. She didn't, you know, suddenly change the whole world, you know, within 24 hours when she was elected. But she she made sure that her focus of the campaign was A, more focused on youth. So she put a lot more energy on climate change. She said climate change was New Zealand's nuclear-free moment, referring to when New Zealand went nuclear-free and broke away from the US alliance in the 80s. She made sure she focused on things like our environment, our quality of our rivers. Uh, she focused a lot on students and also on housing. She was able to speak about uh, the housing crisis as someone who was 37 years old and had only just, you know, had peers who couldn't afford to buy a house. So she she had a sort of a, I should say she was in touch with the youth and she brought a much more youth-focused energy to that campaign. And I guess there's a, there's a saying that the party that owns the narrative about the future wins the election. And I think New Zealand was able to see her as being the future. And I think that, that energy, that hope and that future focus was what really inspired people. And her her slogan, let's do this, mm. what does let's do this represent and mean? You know, there was just this sense from the national government, the previous national government, that 
you know, there were lots of things that would be nice to have, but, you know, in reality, it's all very complicated and the government can't spend any money and so just carry on as we are, don't rock the boat. And I think as these social problems had developed, you know, people had increasingly got frustrated but didn't really think there was a solution. They didn't think any party could come along and fix it. They didn't think there's any way these things could be done. And for her just saying, okay, come on, let's do this. Let's just fix these issues. Let's just actually, you know, tackle the housing crisis, clean up our environment, act on climate change, fund our health system. I think that's that's the sense of that hope and that optimism that we can together actually fix these social problems. And it's also collective, right? It's very much this sort of implied we, which is very mm. large. And it's funny how it, it's funny how it all came about as well, because, I mean, <laughs> people sort of say, how did you come up with that? And it kind of happened organically. I mean, again, as I say, we had 72 hours to redo the campaign and there were various slogans put about. But when Jacinda was first elected, one of the digital people in Labour put out a fundraising email saying, you know, Jacinda's been elected and together we can do it. And the call to action at the end was, let's do this. And I think that was the title of the email as well. And a journalist rang Jacinda and said, is let's do this your slogan? And Jacinda sort of said, oh, no, it's not. Um, and then sort of, I think, just thought about it and was actually like, maybe it is. <laughs> so um, when we sat down and went through all the slogans, that one just kind of stuck out as both being the message of, you know, collective action and the sense of hope we can do it, but also the urgency, I think. You know, we had a seven-week campaign and it reflected the urgency of the campaign. There was no time to muck around and sort of sit around and talk all day. We had to just get on and do it. So what happened with public opinion? How did people's minds shift and what do you attribute that to? So there was a poll that we did, and we'd done it for years, that said, do you think the current government is doing, you know, should be re-elected or do you think it's time to give someone else a go? And over the last couple of years, that do you think it's time to give someone else a go had tracked right up to the point where it was clear that people were ready for change. And as I said, people had identified these problems that we'd been raising and were sure they wanted them fixed, and they knew the national government had no solutions to them. But people didn't see Labour as a viable alternative. And I think what Jacinda did was she gave them permission to reassess their view. They were able to say, actually, I see her, I trust her, I'm inspired by her, and I'll give her a shot. I think she can have a go at fixing it. And so I think that was the primary thing in most voters' minds, was giving them a chance to reassess Labour and go, actually, I believe in you, and I believe you can fix these things. And actually, the phone went back on the hook. Because so often in politics, the phone is off the hook. No matter what you're saying, if they've lost trust or lost faith in the messenger, it doesn't matter what you say, they don't listen. And I think when she came in, they listened, and they liked listening to her. In any political campaign, you can think about messaging in a super simple way as just four things. We call this the messaging quadrant. There's what you say about your opponent, what you say about yourself, what your opponent says about themselves, and what your opponent says about you. Now, only half of those things are under your control because they're the things coming out of your candidate or your party's mouth. In New Zealand, as we heard, there was plenty of bad stuff to say about National, about how they implemented austerity that led to real hardship for everyday Kiwis, or how they neglected housing and utterly failed to do anything on climate, which for an island nation is a pretty serious concern. So there's always a possibility of running a significantly negative campaign, of focusing on the quadrant where you're talking about your opponent. But the risk with that 
and it's certainly something we witnessed here in the 2016 election, is that trash-talking your opponent is still giving them airtime. The story is still about them, a messaging problem we've described in other episodes. If you want to mobilize people to go out and vote, research shows that reluctant participants need something to vote for. Otherwise, they'll just stay home. Instead of focusing in on what's bad about your opponent, you can spend more time talking about who you are, what you'll do, and what you can deliver. And it's in delivering that beautiful tomorrow message that, true to her core beliefs, Jacinda seems to have really shined. Jacinda ran a line of relentless positivity, and that was her motto. And it is who she is, so it was entirely authentic. She said, you know, it went from the top the whole way down, we are only going to be positive. And I think she, you know, she was lucky in a sense that she was in the election campaign where the media actually want to hear what you want to do, as opposed to when you're just running normal opposition and they want to hear what you oppose. But she didn't go for negative attacks. I, I even had examples where we'd come across information of national MPs who had done bad things. And I said, you know, here's an opportunity to have an attack. And she'd say, no, that's not the kind of politics we're going to run, which I found quite surprising. But, you know, she knew very well in her head what she wanted to be, and she stuck by it. So she was she was positive, and she was able to frame the challenges in terms of what we can do together, as opposed to just sitting there complaining about it. And I think that really resonated with people as well, because people don't just want to hear what's wrong, they want to hear that you've got a plan to fix it. The campaign was able to speak their truth, the positivity, the collective spirit, the common sense solutions, through speeches and through photo ops. And they did it through what's called campaign creative. Curative was the lead agency to establish the Let's Do This campaign, working with a team of collaborators, including Augusto, who led production of social media videos, like this one. Now's the time we've been waiting for. This moment. It's an opportunity that we don't want to miss. An opportunity to build a better, fairer future for New Zealand. To improve our health care, to give everyone a voice, to grow our economy and respect our environment. They will dismiss our optimism. They'll say that kindness will stand in the way of progress. They will try to convince you not to rock the boat. But we can do better. Because it's time for better. Better schools, better transport, cleaner rivers and homes for all. It's time to look after our towns as much as our cities. And come the 23rd of September, it'll be time to vote. I am ready. We're all ready. So with all this, despite only having seven weeks to implement a new campaign for a new leader, Labour managed to gain 12 points in the polls with Jacinda at the helm. Of course, there are no givens in politics, especially in New Zealand's political system. Okay, so before we get any further, I should probably explain how elections work in New Zealand. New Zealand is a constitutional monarchy. 
parliament is its main legislative body, and the country uses a mixed-member proportional system, helpfully referred to as MMP, to fill out its currently 120-seat parliament. Proportional representation means that a party's share of seats in parliament reflects its share of the national vote. So a party with 25% of the vote would get 30 out of the 120 seats available. Still with me? It gets a little more complicated because Kiwi voters get two votes, one for a local electorate MP and one for their preferred party. There are 71 electorate seats, each with roughly equal numbers of voters, and 49 list seats available. The candidate that gets the most votes in an electorate goes to parliament. The remainder of the share of seats that their party is entitled to on a national level is made up of list MPs. So if the party that got 25% of the vote nationally won 18 electorate seats, it would add 12 list MPs to make up its total entitlement of 30 seats. The main result of this system is that governments in New Zealand are not run by one party. Instead, New Zealand governments are often formed as coalitions between parties that would pass the 61-seat threshold to form a majority in parliament. So, Neil, I know that New Zealand election results can get pretty complicated pretty fast. Walk me through election night. What was it like for you? We got less than we thought. So we'd been polling in the 40s, and on election night we got 37. Well, we actually on election night we got 36, I think it was. It went up slightly with the special votes. And so I actually thought we'd lost. Um, the National Party claimed victory. The front page of the paper the next day was Bill English, the Prime Minister and National Party leader, with arms raised with his wife standing on the stage with streamers everywhere, um, claiming victory. And I I mean, I, we, you know, we, we kept up in the media and with our supporters that, you know, it's anyone's game and negotiations are going to start. Either side can form a government. We've got to go into coalition negotiations. But in my heart of heart, I thought, we've lost this. You know, we ran this great campaign we got so close, it was within our grasp, and we just didn't quite get there. And then you enter a limbo period, right, of this negotiation. The way it worked out, National could form a coalition with New Zealand First, and Labour could form a coalition with the Greens and New Zealand First. So Labour needed two partners, National only needed one partner. So it was looking pretty remote. But for the first two weeks, Winston Peters, who leads the New Zealand First Party, who was the kingmaker, he said, I'm going to wait the first two weeks and see how the special votes come back. And the special votes are people who are overseas or out of their electorate or for whatever reason cast a special vote. And they tend to favour the left. And as it happened, we picked up a bunch of seats on the special votes and the arithmetic suddenly changed. We were able to form a, I think it was a six-vote majority if we got the Greens and New Zealand first on board. Now, that was still a harder task because we we needed to get two parties across the line for the coalition. National only needed to get one across the line. And what ultimately wooed New Zealand first to Labour? It's funny, it was policy. For Winston Peters and New Zealand first, they saw where New Zealand was going and they felt that they had to bring it back to some sense of equality and care and kindness. And so, you know, Winston Peters, when he announced he was going with Labour, he said that capitalism had failed New Zealanders in its current form and they needed to go and uh, they needed to do things differently. And they had a sense that the economy actually needed to be reformed and that National would carry on doing the same as usual. But by going with Labour, they were able to actually reform the economy and make life better for people. Labour formed a government and Jacinda Ardern became the world's youngest woman head of state. 
I sometimes like to joke that progressive political messaging can be summed up in just three sentences. One, boy, have I got a problem for you. Two, this is the Titanic. Would you like to buy a ticket? Three, we're the losing team. We lose a lot and lost recently. You should join us. Most average people don't want more problems. They've got 99 problems of their own and they don't want more. If they can't see how taking the action we're asking for can deliver something, it's easier to tune us out and try to get through their day. And most people don't want to sign up for the losing team. Paying attention and taking action requires a leap of faith that a desirable outcome is actually possible. Yet this tendency to focus on everything that's horrible about our opponents should sound very familiar. It was on display in the 2016 U.S. presidential race and is a live part of some candidates' messaging for 2020. However, research demonstrates that people, and infrequent voters in particular, need something to vote for, not merely something, no matter how horrifying, to vote against. Because if voting is voluntary, as it is in most places, there is always the option to sit the election out. Jacinda Ardern's campaign could have easily focused on what they were against, but didn't. They ran by assuring voters that together, they could indeed have a better future, not just ameliorate some harms or kick out a bad existing party. To be sure, it is a testament to her leadership skills that she could earn people's trust so quickly and be an authentic voice for this positive message. As we've now seen in her government's response to the massacre at a mosque in Christchurch, Jacinda Ardern is clearly an extraordinary person and an astute politician. But the lessons of this campaign, of standing for something desirable and asking people to put collective effort into achieving it, can serve others across the globe. I'm Anat Shinkro Osorio. Brave New Words is produced by Western Sound for ASO Communications. Our theme song is Somewhere to Begin by T.R. Ritchie. Brave New Words is made possible thanks to support from the Narrative Initiative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to making justice and equity common sense. Learn more at narrativeinitiative.org. Special thanks to Eddie Royal of Curative and Huya Welton of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions. To see photos from Jacinda's campaign trail and links to her ads, please visit bravenewwordspod.com. And please subscribe to this podcast, rate it wherever you listen, and spread the word. A song is somewhere to begin, to search for something worth believing in. If changes are to come, there are things that must be done, and a song is somewhere to begin.